Hello, and welcome to the Vevolution podcast. Since starting in late 2016, Vevolution has been creating inspiring events for the plant-powered generation. Each episode of this podcast will share with you stories and ideas told by plant-based thought leaders from the Vevolution stage. Before we get into today's episode, we'd like to announce the tickets for Vevolution Festival, the UK's leading plant-powered positive change festival, are now on sale. It's back bigger than ever and will be taking place on the 16th of November at the British Film Institute on London's South Bank. Expect a bigger lineup, more incredible food, interactive workshops, engaging panels and lots more. Visit our website at www.vevolution.co for more information and tickets. The low impact living revolution is upon us, but is it enough? In this environmental panel, a group of eco-conscious women discuss the benefits of low-impact living and the changes we need to overcome to ensure a safe planet for future generations. This talk was recorded at She Loves Plants 2019. guys, welcome to the environmental panel. I hope you've been having an amazing day. Uh, the talks on the panels have been really, really interesting. And I am very looking forward to interviewing these amazing women whose work is changing the world. Um, we we're going to have another panelist today, Emi from Sustainably Vegan, but she couldn't make it. So I think we're going to try and make this happen without her anyway. Um, would you like guys to start introducing yourselves? Hi, I'm Celia from Dame, and we've just launched the world's first reusable tampon applicator. And it's all centered around getting rid of that unnecessary single-use plastic waste that comes in menstrual products and giving women more choice in what they can use. Hi, I'm Fran, and I am a sustainable food campaigner, which means that I uh, work, I campaign to make food um, more well, better for people, planet, and the animals. And I'm currently working in East London for the Women's Environmental Network on the Tower Hamlets Food Partnership, which was established last year. We're working with lots of people from across the borough to make food better. Hi, I'm Jess. I'm here from Extinction Rebellion. Can I have a little wave if you've heard of Extinction Rebellion? Oh, beautiful. Um, so we are a new movement that is focused around telling the truth and acting as if the truth is real. That's the truth about the climate collapse, the ecological breakdown, the situation which we are in, which is a lot more severe than anyone dares to dream and anyone is willing to talk about. So I'm gonna be here today being honest with you because that's what's most important, no matter how hard it is to say and no matter how hard it is to hear. Hi, I'm Venetia. I'm a presenter and a podcaster and a creator. I host Talking Taste Buds podcast and I'm a sustainability and slow fashion advocate. Amazing. Uh, I actually wanted to start with you, Jess. Um, and I wanted to ask you to tell us what is the current situation regarding climate change and the environment? Because I think you're going to be the perfect one to give us an overview. Yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, the IPCC is the Intergovernmental um, Panel on Climate Change and last year they released a report saying we have just 12 years to radically change everything about how we live before it's too late to prevent the worst case scenarios from happening. These situations will be things like mass food and water shortages, famines and droughts, hunger, 
across the entire world, rapid sea level rise, one billion climate refugees by 2050. The situation is that everything about the way in which we live our lives will not be possible in the very near future. Everything from being able to go to the supermarket and buy food, um, before we were talking about sustainable fashion, being able to buy clothes, being able to have a home which isn't underwater, being able to live in a system which allows you some, any freedom. These things will not be possible unless we radically change every single thing about how we're living our lives right now. And these, tr these truths, sorry, these truths, we, we don't hear them because they're scary. Because when we hear them, when we listen to them and we accept them, we have to change how we live our lives. It's no longer enough to not use plastic straws when you go out for a drink. It's no longer enough to make small-scale changes to our lives because these, these now 11 and a half years that we have left, they will only work if we make radical changes. I just wanted to let you know, guys, that uh, we're going to have a 10-minute uh, gap at the end so that you can ask any questions. Um, so I suggest that you write them down if they pop into your mind because we're going to be talking about very interesting things. I have another question for you before we start like going rounds. Um, can we reverse it? Honestly, no. Um, people from the IPCC are very clear about this. The path that we're on is not a path that we can go back from. What we can do is we can make it slightly work, uh, slightly not as horrific. What we can do is build communities and build systems of support so that when the collapse comes, we are in a better position to deal with it. But it is very clear that no matter what we do now, in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years time, we will be experiencing radical changes to the way in which our society works, to the ways in which we live our lives. Whether we like it or not, there will be millions and potentially up this billion climate refugees. You think about what's happened to Europe in the past few years with the refugee crisis and think about how difficult that's been for everybody. It's nothing in comparison to the number of people that are gonna be displaced as a result of climate catastrophe. And we can't do anything about it. We can't, we can't stop it from happening. What we can do is prepare for it. And what we can do is try to have hope about how we manage the situation. Yeah, um, it seems to me that we're in a transition time, even though we should have been um, at the other end of the spectrum a long time ago. Um, there are people who are trying to make changes in their daily lives, but some people cannot make, some people are, are not willing to break their habits in order to make better decisions regarding the environment. And that's why I wanted to ask you, Celia, um, what do you think is the responsibility of businesses regarding this topic? Because I know, Dame, your brand has been building a bridge between um, people who use single-use tampons and waste plastic and people who use menstrual cups and are not wasting that much plastic. You found away in the middle how is that going and what do you think the responsibility for businesses is i think that's the point like right now people are 
their eyes are opening up to this problem and the consumer is really wanting to make meaningful change but quite a lot of the time they're too entrenched in their habits and it's about trying to make it easy for them and quick for them. We used to be a service which sold menstrual cups, we sold reusable cloth pads, we sold all sorts of things and the disposable products as well and not enough people were buying the reusables and this shocked us, this scared us and this led to us wanting to to make something, like you said, the bridge, make it easy for people because we knew that that change needed to happen quick. And it was also another reason why when we were designing our product, we realized that the eco side of it wasn't enough to sell the product. We had to make something that looked cool, that looked beautiful, because unfortunately that's the way that people vote with their wallets. And so if we wanted to convert enough people quickly enough to this way of thinking, we had to do it in a different, meaningful way. And I think it is definitely up to businesses to help facilitate this change. Small businesses can make these decisions. Big businesses can as well. It has to be a top-down, bottom-up, everyone trying, governments trying, consumers trying, because otherwise this change won't happen big, uh, quick enough. And it really, really does need to happen quick. Yeah, someone who was ready to jump was Venetia. Um, if I am right, I think you went om almost overnight from buying fast fashion to buying sustainable uh, clothing. Um, do you want to talk a, bit, a little bit about that journey, how you pluck up the courage in a way to just go the other way around and um, some tips for anyone to... Uh, what have you done to stay on track and not fall back into fast, cheap and easy? Yeah, I, I was a massive part of the problem. Um, I consumed a lot of fast fashion. I thought that once I'd worn something once or I'd worn it on the gram, it, I couldn't wear it again. I thought I couldn't. I was doing a lot of TV presenting at the time and I thought I didn't, I shouldn't be on TV unless I had a new outfit every single day. I didn't think about the chain of events that led my piece of clothing to arrive at the store. You just, it's like when, it's, it's, I think veganism got me into this, you know. When you go vegan, you look at what to, what's on your plate and you start thinking, how did this get here? And I did the exact same thing with my clothing. I suddenly started thinking, wait, how did this get here? And when Zara, you know, have 20, 30,000 pieces of the same item, what happens to that item of clothing when it doesn't get sold? Ultimately, it ends up as landfill. As soon as I learned about this, I thought, I can't support this anymore. And so, yeah, I stopped buying fast fashion altogether. I went on a complete fashion detox. I stopped buying fashion. I organized my wardrobe. I really, really think this is one of the most helpful things you can do. If you have any time in your diary uh, where you have a day free on a weekend, take every single piece of clothing that you own and put it on the floor. And this is exactly what I did. I put all of my clothes on the floor and I laid them all out in front of me. And I was so overwhelmed and kind of horrified by the amount I had accumulated. And I thought, I, I can't believe I've got to this place. Um, so I organized it all so I could see it all in my wardrobe. Once you can see everything in your wardrobe, you're in a place to think about how you can, you know, reinvent an outfit and make it look a bit cooler and style it up in a few ways. So I organized my wardrobe. I, this wasn't an original idea. I'm totally stealing this from the queen that is Marie Kondo. Um, and I started thinking about the pieces that really, really brought me joy. And there's an amazing documentary on Netflix, which if you haven't seen, please do. It's called The True Cost. 
Um, they are, it was, it was produced by some wonderful women, Livia Firth and Lucy Siegel. And they are all about uh, the 30 wears hashtag. When you buy a piece of clothing, can you see yourself wearing it 30 times? If you can't, don't buy it. The thing is about fashion is um, I'm in a really privileged, privileged position. I have the time and the money to uh, think about what I'm going to wear. You know, it's not a necessity for me to shop at a charity shop. I do it because I love it, and I do it because I love the experience of finding gems. The same with vintage clothing. But I think a lot of us here have that privilege. If you have the time and the money to think about what you're going to wear, please do not support fast fashion brands if you can. It, this is, it's, it's such a huge problem and they're not treating their workers fairly. There are toxic dyes in the garments and just the scale of it is so vast, it's kind of completely out of control. When you look at a piece of clothing, think of Marie Kondo. Is it gonna bring you joy? Does it make your heart sing? If it doesn't, leave it. If it does, go forth and buy it, but just really, really consciously consume. I think that's the best tip I have. It's like everything, this isn't just food, this isn't just fashion. We need to be consciously consuming absolutely everything. It was like Jess was saying earlier, what content are you looking at? Who are you following? Every decision is important, and I was so, affected by Jess's words. Um, it's kind of overwhelming to think about how little time we have left. But these small habits and these small changes add up and they're gonna make you feel a little bit better about the disaster we're in when you wake up in the morning and they might motivate you to make small changes and that might make you motivate the person next to you and your family and your friends. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. I think also going on to the consumerist thing, like there's so much amazing secondhand stuff out there. Because there's such a wealth of products that are being put out onto the market, you can find incredible clothes out there which are pretty much good as new that people are chucking out. You will never go to Zara again once you enter a charity shop because Zara ends up in charity shops. It's, there's a, it's on, I feel like it's only Zara and charity shops. Uh, Zara and Cos, it's amazing. And you and can Cos. just find all this brilliant stuff that people have chucked out. And so that if you still feel you need that consumerist dopamine hit, you can get it. You just don't have to get it brand new off the bag. Absolutely. Agreed. And it's also a matter of re-inspiring yourself and re... Like, um, sometimes you get on that track of sustainability and then you forget along the way what, why you were doing it. I think it's really important to be responsible for our own actions and trying to feed that sustainability um, bug that we have inside of us. Um, we want to talk, I want to talk about the food industry as well because it's a big, big, big problem and we're not talking about it too much. Um, I don't feel there's enough conversation around it. So how is the food industry affecting the environment? Yeah, well, it's a big question because, as you say, it is having massive impacts on the environment. And I'm glad to hear that, um, Venetia, you've been saying that, you know, we're thinking more about where our food is coming from. Um, I mean, the food industry has a vast, uses a vast amount of natural resources and has significant environmental impacts. But it's hard to get to grips with, or at least I was going to say it's hard to get to grips with, but actually Jessica painted a really clear picture of the kinds of impacts that we're looking at and that we're dealing with. But in London, here in this kind of concrete jungle, we're getting our food imported in, so we're not seeing those kind of direct impacts on our land that are a result of our food choices. Um, so I wanted to just give you a few key facts, which give you an example of the scale 
and also the links between the environment and our food choices. Um, so first of all, if we look at climate change, I'm actually going to refer to the same IPCC report. Um, that showed that the majority of methane and nitrous oxide, which are the two, two major greenhouse gases, come primarily from the food industry um, or the industrial food system. So even if we stopped every other polluting industry without changing current industrial food systems, we would still cause the planet irreparable damage and exceed maximum warming levels that they mentioned in the IPCC report. Um, and then if you look at soil, so obviously soil is actually a source of life um, for not only us, but for so many other things in our planet. Um, and the UN predicted that we only have 60 crop years left. That's 60 years for us to keep on using the land to grow food. And actually, Michael Gove, who is the Secretary of State for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, painted an even more bleak picture. And he said that in the UK, we're doing so much damage to our soils that we only have 30 to 40 years left in the UK. 30 to 40 years left of food growing. Um, and that's because our soil is overworked. And that's because we grow monocultures, which are just one single plant on a field. We've kind of you know, completely decimated the land and, um, and got rid of things like forests um, and other, like hedgerows and other areas where uh, biodiversity would have thrived. Um, we have lots of machines that go and destroy the land and dig up the land um, and we, we spray everything with chemicals to grow our, to grow our food. Um, and if you look at carbon dioxide, this is one of those facts that made my jaw drop when I first heard it. A quarter of all traffic on the road is delivering food. That's one in four vehicles on the road is delivering food right now. And that's partly because the way our supermarkets are set up. So even if you had a farm which is like a mile away from a supermarket, um, you wouldn't have a direct uh, a direct truck going from the farm to the supermarket, you would have the, f the food going up from the farm up to the central distribution site, which might be the other side of the country, and then back down again to the store. So you'd have two, at least, you know, minimum two unnecessary journeys just for that, um, just for that food. Um, and then, yeah, and then one last fact. Um, one import imported basket of food could release as much carbon dioxide as the average four-bedroom household cooking for eight months. That's one imported basket of food. And even more scarily, 40% of food is imported. Um, so you can see there are you know, huge impacts of our food system. And it's little wonder, because from beginning to end, the, the priority is profits, not the environment, and not even public health. So every single stage, from growing and processing crops, through to transporting, through packaging, through to distribution and consumption and beyond, you're looking at huge amounts of waste and destruction. And part of the problem here is that the power lies in so few hands. There's little choice, change, or transparency in our food system. And a good example of this is where you look, when you look at groceries. So 90% of groceries in the UK are bought in supermarkets. And 70% of those are bought from the top four. That's only four companies. So Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, and Morrison's. Um, and we're seeing things like supermarket price wars, which mean that there's very little um, opportunity for smaller and more ethical food and farming enterprises to compete. So actually they just get completely, you know, they have no opportunity to actually um, make ends meet and to keep, uh, you know, doing ethical business. Um, and we have longer and longer and longer supply chains, and without the connection to producers and the decisions um, that are being made on our behalf, we are unknowingly supporting a really destructive um, and environmentally, well, unethical system when we do our weekly shop. 
um, which sounds pretty bleak, but there are actually solutions, which hopefully I'll chat through a little bit later. Um, everything sounds quite overwhelming to me. Um, I wanted to open, uh, ask this question openly so that all of you can answer uh, on your own fields and giving your own answers. Um, we're running out of time, we know that. Um, we have to drastically change what we're doing, our habits and the things that we're uh, used to. Um, but it's really difficult for some people. So. Do you think, guys, um, what, what do you think is more important? Ch changing drastically what our, hab our habits are um, so that we can actually see some, hopefully, some positive change in the future? Or um, taking the time to make slower changes to our daily lives that will eventually help us sustain ourselves in that new um, lifestyle? What do you think, guys, is um, the best option? What should we be doing? I think it's got to be quick change. It's got to be, it's got to be a bridge between the two because, unfortunately, drastic change, like anything in life, like anyone who thinks oh, I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to lose loads of weight, you break that diet within a month. You have to do change that's meaningful and that's simple, but it has to be done in a way that can be as quick as possible. And that combination of the two is quite difficult to find and it's quite difficult to happen. But I think it's very doable when people actually set their minds to it. And that's minds of both business, government and the consumer. It has to happen across the board. It can't be missing out any one of those people. Anyone has anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Um, we need to be kind of looking at um, change, but we also need to be making sure that that change is sustainable. Um, so I think lots of people approach this differently, and it has to be that actually this change is meaningful and long-lasting um, for each individual. But also recognizing that there, there is only so much that one individual can do, and looking at um, top-down approaches as well as bottom-up. So, you know, making changes to your own life, but also looking at how you can support others, like the government, or, you know, pushing business or you know other other organizations to make larger changes to have bigger impacts yeah this is um the the question which is at the heart of extinction rebellion is is how do we make these changes in time and the answer that the movement takes is uh, and a little bit of a different tune from a lot of the conversations that have been happening today and maybe i preface it by saying that i am myself a vegan i don't fly I try to reduce my single waste plastics, um, but I very firmly believe, as does this movement, that none of those things will really make much of a difference. Since 1988, 71% of carbon emissions came from the top 100 companies. The entirety of the UK puts out 2% of total carbon emissions. As individuals, the power that we have is very minimal. If our entire country was to go carbon neutral, that would do nothing. So as an individual, think about how small that impact is. I reiterate, it doesn't mean we shouldn't make these changes. What it means is they alone are not enough. And the, the answer that Extinction Rebellion has is what we need to do is rebel. We need to stand up and say no. We will not be complicit in this system which is destroying the planet anymore. 
It is not okay and we will not allow it to continue. At the very heart of the movement is civil disobedience. What that means is peacefully breaking the law and creating a lot of disruption. There were quite a lot of hands earlier when I asked how many people had heard of the movement. I don't know if you've seen, you've been following the stories, the actions we've been partaking in, blocking bridges, standing in the middle of roads, economic disruption, hitting capitalism where it hurts, because that's where the changes will be made. And the invitation to everyone here in this room is to join us. And that, in my opinion, is how you can have the biggest impact. It's not actually by going vegan. It's not by going zero waste. It's not by stopping using airplanes or buying an electric car. It's by rebelling against the system and forcing the government to radically change every single thing about how we live. Do you want to add something else? <laughs> so, regarding activism, um, do you have any golden rules for any activism campaign or any advice to anyone who wants to join? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a great history of activism, especially environmental activism, which focuses around lobbying and petition signing. Um, this, this doesn't really work, that's been proven. We're still in this situation. We have 11 years left, despite decades worth of, of this work. So the golden rule of our activism is nonviolence. It's peaceful protest, but it's peaceful disruptive protest. Um, maybe I'll share with you one of the actions which we had earlier um, in the journey of this movement. Last November, we had Rebellion Day. 6,000 people came out onto five bridges across central London, and we took those bridges. We walked out into the middle of the roads, and we sat down in front of the vehicles, and we didn't move. There were plenty of police officers. They, they joined us on the street, and they said, are you aware that what you're doing is illegal? If you don't move, we're going to arrest you. And we said, okay. Plenty of pedestrians walked past and said, why are you disrupting our lives? It's not our fault what's happening. And we said, we know but we have to do something. What's happened over the past six months as this movement has grown is people, more and more people, have heard about us and have come out and joined us on actions. I'm sure lots of people here have been at Vivolution events before. Maybe you heard Jack Harry's talk at one of these events. A couple of weeks ago, he was involved in an Extinction Rebellion action at the International Petroleum Festival where all of the wealthiest people who are destroying our planet came together to talk about how to continue destroying our planet and have a fancy gala dinner. A number of our activists went along and performed one of my favorite tactics, which is pouring superglue on your hand and sticking your hand to the door of the building, and suddenly no one can get into that building. What's really great is that the police are not allowed to remove you from that door because if they injure you whilst doing so, they violated the human rights. What they have is specially trained police officers who are degluing police officers. But there aren't many of these degluing police officers, so it takes quite a long time for a degluing police officer to get called down to the scene. And during that time, no one can get into the building. My theory is, over the past few months, they've been training up much more degluing police officers. <laughs> I think this is the, the thing that we can learn 
from these actions is that it's only when we create disruption to the lives of the people who actually have an impact, these are the top companies and the governments, when we disrupt their lives, suddenly it matters. Suddenly people listen. When we disrupt our own lives and when we disrupt the lives of other people who are slaves to the system and who are struggling just as much as us, it doesn't work. It's not enough. So you're saying that this last campaign worked better than the one uh, blocking the bridges? I think that all of these campaigns, all of these actions, um, they are disruptive. That's, that's at the heart of what we're doing. Um, the, the key difference here is the fact that we are breaking the law. Um, so how many people here have ever been on a protest or a march? Did you block a road when you were doing it? Did you walk in the road? Yeah, okay, so what, what would have happened before that march is the police would have been called and they would have said, hey, um, we want a protest. Can we have this road? And the police would have said yes. And they would have organized it so that all the buses and all the cars could just go down a different road in the same way that they would if there was a marathon or roadworks going on. The point of these actions is that we're not asking for permission. We're telling, we're being very open about everything that we're doing, but we're making it very difficult. Um, maybe one quick um, story about something that happened yesterday outside 10 Downing Street. 50 activists arrived with buckets of red, not quite paint, it was a homemade mixture representing the blood of future generations who will be lost as a result of climate change. They stood outside Downing Street and threw this blood in a symbolic act of sacrifice on the ground. 50 people standing there in confidence saying, I'm going to break the law, I'm going to cause disruption, I'm going to make a hell of a mess, and if you want to arrest me at the end of it, so be it, that's okay. And the difference in this kind of action versus asking the police to please divert the traffic for an afternoon so I can walk in the street instead of on the pavement is magnificent. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about businesses as well. Um, I know Dame, your brand, works, uh, has been recently added to the B Corp um, list. D do you want to talk about how is movements and institutions like B Corp helping to draw the guidelines to and find balance for businesses, um, balance between profit, people, and the environment, how to get into the B Corp, all those things? So I don't know if anyone's aware about B Corp. Does everyone know about B Corp? B Corp basically is a, an organization which helps businesses who want to be a force for good. So it gives them clear guidelines on how they treat their employees, their suppliers, how they view their business, and it's, it's purpose with profit combined. And it's a very long, arduous process to get certified a B Corp. It's not just going back to those days of CSR where you get a little rubber stamp and you're there, you have to literally open your doors and show them everything about your business. And you really have to believe in what you're doing. And it's an amazing thing to do because as a small business like us, it gives us a good blueprint for how we want to move forward and how we want to treat both the people internally and externally within our company. Um, and it's a great thing for both small businesses and big businesses because it's showing that there is this impetus for people to really get behind the fact that business doesn't just have to be about profit. It can be about more than that. And you can actually 
do a Patagonia and become incredibly successful whilst treating everyone and treating the environment uh, correctly as well. And it's, it's an amazing thing. I think this, the sadness right now about B Corp is not very many people know about it who are not in that world. And I think the more that that message can be spread out, the more people can actually see the difference between a B Corp company or a type of B Corp company and other companies who don't treat the environment right, who don't treat their workers right, who don't, aren't treating, who aren't really thinking beyond their revenue line. Um, and so I would really encourage everyone to, if you don't know about B Corp, to go and look on their website, look at the types of companies that do it. They're all type, different types, they're not just consumer products. And they're all different people trying to really think long term and not just think short term about how they can maximize um, their sales. Um, Fran, you were mentioning earlier that you're doing some work with the borough of Tower Hamlets and that you're trying to change the food industry scheme there. What are the things that you're looking at and what are the changes that you're trying to make? Yeah, so we're working with the, the council as well as businesses, organizations, academics, campaigners, schools, and anyone else across Tower Hamlets um, who wants to look at our food system and make better changes. Um, it's really new, so it started last year. So we're just at the beginning of kind of that whole journey of looking at what's going on in Tower Hamlets and what we can do to change it. Um, but already, because we have these links in with the council, we've managed to feed into some of the policies there. Um, so we've managed to weave in some sustainability um, into their, the policies that are already going through at the council. Um, and we're following the Sustainable Food City, um, which is uh, a kind of movement in itself. It's a network of cities across and, and areas across the UK which are working with local people to improve local food systems. And they have guidelines on, um, which are kind of fed into by academics um, on how to improve your food system. So we're following these guidelines um, to look at the environmental impact as well as health and social impact impacts. But on the environment specifically, um, we're building on the success of this amazing food growing network. It's amazing looking at this, I mean, we're kind of right next to Tower Hamlets now, we're in, just in Hackney. Um, but it's such a built up area and yet there are lots of little hidden community gardens which are growing amazing food. Um, and so we're, and there's an amazing network of them there already. Um, so we're building on the success of the food growing network uh, because we know that when people grow their own food, they have a better connection to fruit and vegetables, and so they tend to eat more fruit and veg and have more concern for the environment in which their food is grown in. Um, so we're protecting these growing spaces and we're also conducting research on um, food waste, meat reduction and procurement, to name a few, uh, because we know these are, um, have huge impacts on the environment. However, we are limited by resource. I'm the only paid person on the, to actually run the partnership, um, and I'm only two days a week. I have a a couple of other jobs, um, but, um, but you know, so it's, it's very limited, so we can only really go where there's motivation, and that's the same for all of these other food partnerships across the country, so if you are interested in sustainable food, please check out Sustainable Food City's website and see if your local area has a food partnership, and if you're in Tower Hamlets, get in touch, because we could always do with more help. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you, Venetia, about um, activism online. You've been doing for a long time now. Um, you've been sharing your message, and it's really important, and I think it's been changing a lot of people's lives. Um, what have, how have you seen the change in the situation online? Like, how are people responding to it as, where, as opposed to how we're responding before? And what are the strategies that you use in order to inspire change in people? Okay. 
Uh, that's a big question. Um, the reaction to my online activism has been very, very positive. I definitely feel uh, that there, people want to hear about it. Uh, people are wanting to make long-lasting, disruptive change. They don't want to consume as much as they did. They want to slow their fashion. They want to eat more plant-based meals. They want to, they're willing to take less flights. Um, I think we're ready for this change because we know we need to make drastic change and I think that's why it's having such a positive uh, response. Um, I have definitely noticed uh, corporations and companies wanting to make changes. Um, I'm concerned about this because I think some of it is really, really genuine and uh, the the, gen the brands and the corporations who are doing it genuinely are brands that I love and that I want to work with and I do work with, but I think there's also a lot of greenwashing. We have to be really, really wise and alert to the brands that are greenwashing us. Please never buy anything from H&M that says it's conscious. It's not. Uh, it absolutely isn't. It's not in any way. It can't be. And we're going to see more and more of this. There's going to be more greenwashing from brands that aren't B Corps, from brands that are just cashing in. And similarly, unfortunately, I've noticed this with influencers. I've noticed influencers doing sustainable sustainable fashion hauls on their YouTube channels this defeats the whole point of slow fashion slow fashion is not about just wearing sustainable brands and buying loads of pieces that's not what it's about I would personally speaking I would much rather you buy something from boohoo or pretty little thing and it's a piece that you love that you're gonna have for a lifetime than I would you buying 10 pieces that are from sustainable brands. So I think as consumers, we really need to wise up and we need to be very specific about who we follow and about who we listen to. And something that I'm really, uh, really keen for is to just make it a conversation. Um, I started a Facebook group called the Slow Fashion Exchange. If you're at all interested in slow fashion and slowing your fashion, if you have questions about it, please join this group. It's just wonderful girls and some guys chatting about slow fashion from all across the world. They're hosting swap shops and uh, events where they can connect with like-minded people. This is all about community. We need to be raising awareness amongst our communities. Um, so please join that Facebook group where you can have these conversations. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's, I, there are, I'm in two minds, but I just think we need to be really wise to who we follow and alert to brands who are just cashing in on this new little fun hashtag that is sustainability. Um, yeah, that's how I see it. I have a tricky uh, question. Um, any of you can answer. Obviously, we need to change um, the way we consume things and the way we buy things, but what do you think is the future of businesses? Because um, we need to stop buying as much, but we also need things to buy. So where do you think things are going to? I'm really excited about Loop and TerraCycle and the, and the prospect of, of refills. Um, I, that's what I'm most excited about at the moment. Oh my gosh, I went to a zero waste store the other day and uh, how I'm on a sustainability panel, woohoo! And uh, I've refilled my uh, my jug of my jar of olive oil. It was really satisfying, and I really think refilling is the future. We need to step away from the notion of how recyclable something is, um, because it's we don't really recycle half of the stuff that we recycle barely anything. Um, refilling is something I'm really excited about. The notion of being more of a loop circular circular society and in terms of fashion swap shops and renting 
Uh, there are an amazing rental websites popping up. There's one in, that's just launched in London called Her. That's H-U-R-R. -R. You can rent out your clothes. You can rent from other people. And just swap shops, I think, are really, really exciting. Celebrating pre-existing and, again, valuing everything you have, whether that's your clothes or the jars that you have. When you finish your jar of whatever it is, aquafaba mayonnaise from Ruby's or whatever it is, keep that jar, refill it with something else. I know that this isn't extinction rebellion, you know, catastrophic change, but I really do passionately believe that it's these little motivations that keep us going and keep us from going home and crying <laughs> in the evenings when we hear about the devastation that is upon us. Thank you. Right, uh, we don't have time for anything else. Uh, thank you guys very much for being on the panel. Um, it's been really useful and thank you guys for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us some positive feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. By doing this, you'll be helping get messages about inspirational, positive, plant-powered living into people's earbuds. Until the next time, take care, and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.